In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. When I was newly ordained, I moved back to Philadelphia to work in a big urban church right in the center of the city. And while I was there, I adopted a rescue dog. And like every other priest I know, I searched for the perfect nerdy priest name for this dog and finally settled on canon. Canon with one N, so canon like canon law, as in church law, the law that governs the church. He was a blue healer mutt, a herding dog at heart, and he was the best dog ever. We had that magic bond that you have when for a little piece of your life, it is just you and the dog. And he was very, very popular. He went to church with me almost every day. He hung out in my office. He greeted everyone who came in. But because he was a rescue, there were certain situations that sort of pushed his buttons, kicked up his anxiety. So we worked with a trainer pretty regularly. And what I learned in that time, that normal thing that you've learned if you've ever worked with a dog and a trainer, is that dogs with anxiety need structure. Dogs actually want less choices. They want someone else to be in charge and to tell them how to behave. They want someone to make them feel safe. They still have that instinctive pack mentality inside them and it's easier for them and less anxiety provoking if it's very clear that someone else is the leader of the pack. Dogs like Cannon only act big and tough when they feel like no one else is in charge, when they feel threatened, like it's all on them. And what they really need is a human who loves them and insists on keeping them in line. The structure and the rules the limited choices actually lowers their anxiety and makes them happier dogs. When we find Jesus in the gospel this morning, he is provoking the crowd. And he doesn't have anything nice to say about this generation. He is tired and he is frustrated with how fickle they are, with their lack of satisfaction, with their lack of gratitude, with how harsh and judgmental they are, and how quick they are to dismiss. Look at these two examples he gives us. God sends two messengers, two voices. On one hand, we have John the Baptist, who's an ascetic. He lives in the desert. He eats locusts and wild honey. Arguably, his life was the purest it could possibly be. He had disengaged with society as a whole. He made his home with other like-minded, pious people in the desert. They avoided every temptation, and they lived as close to a godly life as they could. And because of that, he preached fiery sermons about sin and reconciliation, calling people to a baptism of repentance so that they would go and live different lives. He was a prophet, rough around the edges, but pious and faithful. And even though he was the picture of a prophet, the people didn't want to hear him. And they didn't like what he had to say, the way his words made them feel, convicted, guilty. They didn't want to have to change their life or live differently because to do that they'd have to admit that they were wrong, that they were flawed. So they found his truths and his challenges inconvenient and they dismissed him. They said he had a demon, which is sort of the ancient version of just basically calling him crazy, deciding that what he had to say didn't have merit because, well look at him, he has to be crazy. And then comes Jesus who is in many ways the polar opposite, still deeply faithful, still prophetic, still rough around the edges, but altogether Jesus was softer in many ways. His life was a life of hospitality, of welcome, 
We know he even went to weddings and made extra wine. He encouraged his followers to break the rules that didn't make any sense, to love and honor the spirit of the law instead of judging themselves and others too harshly if they fell short of the letter of the law. Jesus' call to transformation is much more concerned with wholeness and justice than with piety and purity. He should be quite a bit more approachable than John when we think about it that way, right? But still, the people found reasons to dismiss him because he too asked too much of them. He didn't act the way they thought he should. He didn't do the things they wanted him to do. And so the crowds criticized him for basically having too much fun, for being too human, too accessible. You couldn't possibly be a prophet if you act like that. It would be easy for us to listen to this text and to pretend that Jesus was only talking to the generation in front of him. But of course, he wasn't. There are many in every generation who will choose not to hear the gospel. And if we are honest, there are moments and seasons in all of our lives when we choose, for whatever reason, not to hear the truth. We can find a million reasons to ignore the message, to dismiss the prophet's message of justice and reconciliation, of repentance and hospitality. In fact, human beings are masters at putting up our own walls, at even putting up our fists, at refusing to be changed because we don't really like what we're hearing, because it makes us anxious and uncomfortable and even angry when someone suggests that we're wrong or that we have to change or makes us feel badly about ourselves or something that we've done. We are equally good as that crowd that surrounds Jesus in this text this morning at blocking out messages that don't make us feel good. And that is what the crowds have done. They've dismissed John and Jesus because the truth they heard from them was just too hard. And it made them feel badly. And what's really interesting about this passage is that Jesus is actually angry. This is one of the places in scripture where he really is angry that people will not listen. God has done all these things, sent prophets and messengers and people to rein the people in, to tell them that they're loved, to show them the path. And now finally, God has sent God's own son to preach peace, to call the people to a new life, to show them what love and justice really look like. And instead of listening, instead of learning to love their neighbor, God's people have decided that it's too hard. So they have judged and dismissed the messengers and the messages. And they've let themselves very easily, very nicely off the hook. So Jesus is angry. But then as he always does, he moves from this place of anger to a place of invitation. Because he knows that this tendency to dismiss, to ignore, to be harsh and judgmental, comes from a place of anxiety, from a place of not feeling whole or in control. It comes from a place of fear and a place of insecurity about who we are and about what we've done. And it's wrapped up in the lies of the world that teach us to be selfish and individualistic and to isolate ourselves from our neighbors who we think are just too different from us. So Jesus gets angry and then he pivots like he always does, hoping that his anger will spark something, that it will invite real change and create a new kind of relationship. Jesus is hoping that his anger will somehow wake people up and make them want to change, to hear and to accept this loving invitation to a better life. So he says, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, he says. Choose my life, my path, my way of love. Learn to live and to love like I do. Take on the actual yoke of love. Be part of my body and part of my kingdom. And you won't feel threatened or anxious or alone anymore. You will find rest like you have never known. But ironically, in God's economy, that rest, that restfulness also comes with work. The yoke here that Jesus is talking about is none other than the big frame that joins two oxen together in the field that guides them, that leads them forward and helps them to do their work, whether it's seeding or harvesting or whatever else the farmer wants. What Jesus is inviting them to is shared labor, shared work, shared life, shared identity. And a yoke gives the oxen no choice about where they're headed or what they're doing or even who their companion is on the way. It's the farmer, the driver, the one in control who makes all those decisions. So if you give yourself up to this way of love, then you are giving up a good bit of your autonomy. When you take on the yoke of love, you can't help but work for a world and a kingdom that is loving and fair, where we respect the dignity of every human being and every person has what they need, because this is God's dream. And putting on the yoke of love means becoming part of God's dream. The promise is that in submitting yourself to this work, to this pack, if you will, where you are not the leader, but a follower, that in the work and in the companionship and in the submission, you will find real rest and real wholeness that the world cannot give you. Our world is filled right now with messages that make us uncomfortable, some for very good reasons. We are surrounded by situations where many are calling for change and some of that change requires the hard work of introspection, of realizing that we are not in control, that we have made mistakes, that we are not perfect. In every one of these situations, the yoke of love calls us to the gentle, humble actions that will respect the dignity of more and more and more of our neighbors. So when you feel challenged or threatened or anxious, Go to him first. Remind yourself that you are not the leader of the pack. You are a beloved worker, but just a worker. You are a member, a part of the body, necessary, but only part of the larger picture. Yield to him and listen, rather than judging or dismissing the messages that challenge you. Accept this loving invitation to shared work, shared vision, and shared identity, and be part of God's dream for this generation. A dream that requires all of us to be transformed. A dream of hospitality, repentance, forgiveness, and justice. Amen.